Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 4th of April. If you're in time zones that allow for that, it's the 5th of April, if you're a day ahead. John Hattie is our special guest. John, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Good to talk to you, Stephen, and to all the others there. And you've been through a time zone change yourself, so appreciate your juggling everything. Yes, I've had a very pleasant week in Hawaii, doing it very hard, having a bit of a vacation, but now back here in Melbourne. Okay. <laughs> I didn't mean for you to have to confess the vacation. Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell, Blackboard Collaborate, and Menko for support. We had a wonderful school leadership summit. I, I missed John in transit. Uh, just outside of Melbourne, I was in a small cottage with Coach Carolyn Rand, the Worldwide School Leadership Summit, a, an all-day event. Michael Fullen and Young Zhao and Bill Brennan were keynote speakers, and we had about 70 sessions from practitioners. It's all recorded and online and free to listen to at schoolleadershipsummit.com. Coming up at ISTE, we have a great set of fringe events, starting with the all-day unconference on Saturday called Hack Education. And then this summer, we have a worldwide STEM conference. We have the Future of Libraries conference in its third year, and the Global Education conference in its fourth year. Can't, well, that's a five-day, 24-hour-a-day event. Can't wait for the fifth-year anniversary of that. That should be a lot of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, Madeline Levine on her book, Teach Your Children Well. You can see a variety of other fun uh, interviews coming up. If you've missed any of our interviews, they are all recorded. They're in full Blackboard collaborate form in an MP3. Uh, Michael Fullen's keynote interview, I actually interviewed him for the closing keynote of that School Leadership Summit. Yong Zhao's presentation is up there. And then before that, uh, Adam Bessie on um, the global education reform movement, uh, Jay Cross on informal learning, Adit Harold Caperton on instructionism. <laughs> I always have to try and remember that. Uh, Paul Thomas on poverty, Chris Mercoliano on the um, um, changes in childhood. Anyway, lots up there, hopefully something of value to you. So this is the chance for you to tell those of us, uh, those of you who are in the listening audience, where you're listening from. Look for the star to the left of the map. It's the second icon down. You double click on that, and then you click on the map. I'm not even sure where on the map I am as I'm in Bali right now and just grateful to have a good internet connection. But feel free to shout out in the chat your location, the time, the temperature, anything else you think it would be fun for us to know. This has been a working trip. Yes, Bali is awesome and it's been incredible. Um, so I won't downplay just the, the fun factor. Please keep those keep that information flowing in the chat. It is easier to see the chat if you actually pull that chat box out and enlarge it. You can do so by double clicking on the top and dragging it out, or you should see a menu at the top that lets you detach the panel and you can resize it. If for some reason that panel gets lost during the session, you can go to View, Restore Default Layout, the View, men view in the main menu, Restore Default Layout to bring uh, the, tra the traditional layout back.
there is a Mighty Bell space for this session. Let me get you that link. In fact, I'm underprepared here. And it is a place where you can keep uh, notes, engage in conversation, bring in web pages or documents to continue the conversation on this interview. The link is now in the chat. It's also on my blog post about the show. So John, I, I feel like having uh, spent maybe five, six hours with this book in preparation, though I really wished I'd had months to read through it. Uh, it's just an incredible achievement, and yet it's only sort of the tip of the iceberg of the work that you've done, right? Um, yes, it's been a labor of love for many years. So let's start by talking about what visible learning is. How do you describe visible learning? What I tried to do, Steve, was uh, obviously look at what the evidence was saying about what made a difference to students learn and create a story. And uh, one of the mistakes I think some readers make is they look at the numbers and think the numbers are it. The numbers are just indicative of trying to make that story and underlying that story is this notion of making learning visible. I think we've been distracted in the past many decades by looking at teaching as something that we do. Um, we often go into classrooms and look at teachers teaching and we've missed the point. We should be looking at the learning side of it, the impact we have and getting away from what's the best teaching method and what isn't, how do we train teachers to teach as opposed to how do we get them to observe learning. And so that's the fundamental message in the visible learning book is about this notion of trying to make the learning visible. And it applies not only to us as we try to have an impact on students, but it's also us as we try to have an impact on ourselves. How can we be more aware of the impact that our people who try to teach us have on us? So that's been the underlying theme that comes out of it. It's trying to switch it all the way from how do we do more to students and trying to make it more, how do we do more to us, the adults, the ones who get paid to make the difference, to be the change agents? How can we make our role and our impact more visible? So there is this sort of brilliant parallel that keeps coming out in the work, right? That, that the, the student learning and then there's teacher learning and then there's administrator learning and I'm assuming sort of parent and community learning as well. But the ultimate goal is learning being explicit and transparent as a goal, right? Absolutely. And like certainly in, in many of the countries I see coming up on the, um, the chat list today, we're in a society where we see learning as very narrow outcomes on school, different kinds of tests and different kinds of instruments. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is students who learn to concentrate, who learn to persevere, who learn to know what to do when they don't know what to do, who see errors as opportunities. And my point is all of those are taught skills. And that sometimes we miss that in our discussions when we talk about literacy and, and numeracy and science and all those things. And there's nothing wrong with those subjects. But it is about the way in which we approach them, how we can build up surface information, and how we can build up sufficient surface information that we can then make relationships and connections. And that's the thrill. Uh, and certainly a, a very common theme that comes through all the work. That's the passion that I want to see in classrooms. Uh, at the very end there, your voice um, 
kind of got soft. I think maybe there's a you turn away from the microphone or there's something that happened, but just be aware that that takes place. Well, that very description that you just gave of the outcome for students, every time I read that or, or a form of it in the book, I kept thinking, well, that's sort of brilliantly the same outcome for teachers. Do teachers respond sort of knowingly with that message? Do they, do they get that? Uh, I think one of the things that's um, visible learning is, is sort of caught on. And, you know, sometimes you get surprised as an academic when an idea catches on. And I thought it was going to be a bit of a one-year wonder, but it's, it's caught on a few years. And I think one of the things, probably immodestly, is that what I've discovered is that there is an incredible amount of success out there. And that might seem very naive, but academics usually like to discover study failure. But I'm much more interested in studying success, and I can see a lot of success out there. And certainly when you, I talk to teachers and talk to them about the impact they're having, that's a language they understand. Um, so often when we talk to teachers, we constantly tell them what they should do, and it's usually more of what I think you should do. But to say to them, let us work together to understand the impact certainly how we can do it in a collaborative manner. I think that's probably one of the missing links in our business at the moment, that teachers so often define their professionalism by their autonomy. Rather, I think the more successful ways in which we have to build our profession is to get teachers to talk to each other about how they're having an impact, to help each other understand how they're having an impact. And that resonates very strongly with a lot of teachers. And certainly our most successful teachers out there, and I would certainly argue there are a large percentage of our teachers who are systematically having the kind of impact I'm talking about, it kind of legitimates what they're doing. And that's really exciting. There's a story that you tell at the very beginning of the book. And I'm wondering if my reaction to it is similar to others. It's the story, story of Elliot and leukemia and the ways in which the medical profession as a community kind of comes around him and, and helps him uh, build his life even in the face of this disease. I love the story, and my first thought was, well, that must have been an expensive process. Do people look at what you're describing and think, well, that's just too hard to do for every student? Well, mostly it's a lot. Like, certainly if you look at the amount of money that we spend in education, it's measured in billions a year in most countries. And we constantly ask for more and more money, and at times we get more and more. And if you look at the US, the UK, Australia, the amount of money that we've put into education over the last decade is phenomenal relative to the number of uh, the extra number of students. However, we're not putting the money where it makes the difference. Like it's like going into the medical profession and say we're going to build more hospitals, we're going to build more beds, we're going to build more drugs and medication, but we're not going to spend it on the doctors and help them understand how to use it, how to work collaboratively. And that's what we're not doing in education. We're constantly um, for instance, in the UK and the US, the percentage of students have gone up about 10 to 15% over the last decade. The number of adults in schools has gone up 48%. But we're not saying how we're going to use those adults more effectively. In fact, it's, I think it's fascinating that the concept of efficiency is almost absent in education. How can we be more, more efficient and work together to make the impact? And so, yes, it is a very expensive proposition that I'm putting forward. But it's not because the money's not there, it's just how it's not being used to put some trust in the best teachers. I got into trouble last year when I went to the London Festival and made the comment, which I certainly do believe, that one of the hindrances is that teachers themselves won't recognize excellence in others. 
are very reluctant to allow a group of professional, highly experienced, highly competent teachers to come together and help drive the profession. There's kind of a bit of a mistrust in that, and I think that's a major failing. So I think that the, um, the money's there, but what we need more than anything else is a willingness to recognise expertise and not say because you don't have it that you're no good. Like just because we have top surgeons, we don't assume that the other surgeons are no good. They're on a pathway to get there. And I think that's what we need in our profession is this notion of excellence. So again, I don't want to keep harping on it, but it feels like there's this tremendous parallel between the inherent potential of every student and the inherent potential of every teacher and the responsibility to build a culture which recognizes how you help people develop excellence. Yes, it is that culture. And you know, the catch cry I'm using at the moment is collaborative impact, how we can get collaborative. Because one of the messages I don't want people to take from my work is that we're generating all these individual teachers that are left alone in their classrooms to do wonderful things. Um, that in many cases, it is what we want in one sense, but it's not as if every teacher out there is wonderful. There is a proportion that is still growing. Uh, the luck doesn't mean to say they're bad, but they are growing. Kids know this, parents know this, other teachers know this. How do we collaborate collectively to ensure that all teachers are having the impact? Well, that means we're going to have to look and help each other. We're going to have to understand what progress and challenge means. We're going to have to understand what curriculum means. We're going to have to understand what the magnitude of the impact we're having. And that requires a collaborative workforce. And that's one of the things that I don't see enough of in our profession at the moment. So I want to talk a little bit uh, as we move forward about the sort of two tones of the book, the, the data driving it, and then also what appears to be sort of the your conclusions or, or even the moral imperative. But let's talk about the data first. We hear the phrase big data a lot. I think this really qualifies as big data, right? I mean, two, 240 million students having been involved in these uh, 146,000 effect sizes and over 52,000 studies, this is a lot of data. Yeah, it's not a bad data source. You're absolutely right. So um, I had to actually kind of learn myself about some of this. There, there's a lot of this that was new to me. So tell us what a meta-analysis is. Well, this is where we take a topic um, of any kind of influence you want to have in education, and we then go and find out as many articles that have been published, PhD theses, master's theses, conference papers as we can, and then there's a way you can then, using a pretty basic statistical method, put all those outcomes of those many studies, whether it's been a test, whether it's been a classroom test, a statewide test, all onto the same scale, the same metric, to answer the question, what's the average impact across all the different effects that say on reciprocal teaching? And the second part of what you do is to say, well, are there any moderators? Does it make a difference, for instance, you teach reciprocal teaching in science or in maths with five-year-olds or with 15-year-olds. And those are pretty important questions. And certainly when I started this whole thing, I expected to find lots of those kind of moderators and was stunned and surprised that there were very few of them. What works best tends to work best regardless of age or subject or country or whatever. And so meta-analysis is a systematic way of trying to take many, many studies. And as you said, I, I've taken around 60,000 studies and put them all onto the scale to answer this kind of relative question 
what's more, what has a greater impact than other things, and that's kind of the underlying basis of what I'm trying to do. So I went on the web and with permission from someone who had modified your chart, someone named James Atherton, I, I got a version of this chart that shows the variety of effects. So can you describe, this is in your book but not in color, can you describe what we're looking at here? John, did I lose you or is your mic off? So I'm not hearing John. Am I alone? Yes, you are alone because I didn't turn talk on. <laughs> Can you hear me now? <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, the chart is showing the 280-odd million kids, the 55,000 studies, and along the bottom are the different effect sizes. And you can see the zero point there. And the number of effects, uh, number of students are going up the side. And there is not many things we do that actually harm kids. That's really good news. Um, and what, but the thing that surprised me more than anything else, and this is probably the biggest surprise for me in all the work I've done, is that almost everything we do to students increases their achievement. The zero point, everything above zero means that we're increasing kids' achievement. And part of my problem of our discipline is that we have set the bar so low that we have got ourselves into troubles. And what I mean by that is that if a teacher says, look, I can show you how I've enhanced a kid's achievement, this chart shows you that everybody can do that. And so when a politician comes up with a new idea, it will work. Of course, every parent knows how to do it better than us if it means that they can enhance achievement. Well, in one sense, they're right. So the first thing is that virtually everything in, we do in education does enhance kids' learning. What's obviously of fascination to me is that it's almost a normal distribution. And the average effect size of around 0.4, over half, maybe 50-60% of our teachers are systematically having greater than 0.4 effect sizes. And so there is a lot of success out there. What my worry is in our profession is the teachers that get effect sizes less than 0.4, because I don't think they're doing as good as we want them to do. And I certainly don't want my child in a class with a teacher who systematically gets less than the average. And so this chart is certainly very important to me. Almost everything works in our business, so let's get away from talking about what works. Let's, try, let's get away from teachers saying, look, this worked for me, why don't you try it? Because that's just not good enough. That's too low a bar. We have to start saying, what's the magnitude of our effect? Because as you can see in this chart, there is a whole group of teachers out there, a very large percentage, who can systematically get greater than that point four, and that's what I want, and that's what the whole book was about. What is the story underlying the teachers who get above point four with those who get below point four? So the whole idea is that you actually have to know, right? So if you are collecting data and you're working together to figure out what effects certain strategies are having on learning, then you have something to work from. Am I right? Look, you're so right on that. In fact, I wanted to call the, the second book Know Thy Impact, because it was about knowing our impact. And there are lots of ways we can know our impact. Of course, assessment can do it. One of the ones that I'm doing a lot of work on at the moment and my PhD students are working on is how do you understand your impact from listening to classroom discussion? How you can understand your impact from listening to the questions students ask? And it's a sad fact that most students, most classes per week, students ask about 
two or three questions about their work they don't know the answer to. If we're not listening to the students, how do we know what our impact are? And there is lots of ways we can know our impact, and that's what drives me. Yes. Well, for me, one of the most brilliant moments in the book was the description of the elementary school where the students know the impact as well. So this isn't just about teachers knowing the impact, but it's the transparency over the process that everybody is measuring that impact. Yeah, and certainly since um, the book and, and in my work in New Zealand before I came here to Australia in many schools, there's probably quite a few thousand schools that the team and I have worked with over the last few years. And it's really a, a pleasure going to some of them and watching six and seven year old students who say, this is the kind of impact I need to get through these lessons. Teacher, how can you help me get this? I haven't, I've done my, my own assessments of myself using the various tools that are available and it's not good enough. And so students do understand this and they love the challenge of trying to do better. They love to beat their own personal bests. And so yes, that's the next step, is how do we translate the language of learning from the teachers having it to the students having it as well. It's really quite exciting to see that. So if I've understood correctly, for the benefit of those of you who may be seeing this for the first time, the, the effect of point 0 0.4 is roughly equivalent to a year of schooling. So a measure that has an, uh, an effect of greater than point 0.4 is a significant effect, and those are the ones you want to be looking for. And I think you describe in the book, John, that the difference between a teacher who's not effective, least effective, and the one who's most effective can almost be the same amount. Yes, that's the case. Let me go a step further. Um, I've also analyzed the SATs in England, the NAEP in the US, the NAPLAN in Australia, the ASTOL test scores in New Zealand. And when I analyze all those, I also get exactly 0.4 as the average growth per year. So based on all the visible learning work, based on all the national testings in those countries, the 0.4s are pretty robust. And so the jargon I now use is that every student, every student has the right to expect at least a year's growth for a year's input. And I think we kind of know what it looks like. So this next image is sort of the, the way of looking at a specific effect and determining is it, does it fall into the right category. Uh, worth describing? Yes, this is a way to try and bring some structure to the book. And obviously we want um, effects in that zone of desired effects. Um, and most of those are specific interventions that teachers have tried. And it's fascinating that when teachers try a new intervention, they're much more willing and open to seeing what the impact they're having. The trouble with some teachers is they become more experienced, they assume that they're having an impact. And hence their effect sizes drop more onto the point 0.2 to point 0.4 level. Um, one of the criticisms that was made of my work early on is that, hey, the zero point is a bit misleading because kids learn anyway despite us. And so I went to many developing countries and collected data from those from kids who didn't go to school and worked out that the developmental effect was about up to about 0.15 anyway. Now the good news from that is that we can certainly see that schools make a difference. Um, but the 0.15 sets the tone for the developmental effects and obviously we want nothing less than zero. So in, the, in one of the appendices to the book, Appendix C, you list the influences on achievement, at least 150 of them, in rank order by the effect. 
And some of these were a surprise to me. What findings here do people most, are they most surprised by or take issue with? <laughs> there are a few, and interestingly, the one that you've got up on the screen is one of them, is homework. Uh, it's one of the very few where there is a moderator effect. That the average effect of homework, as you can see, is 0.29. In high schools, it's around about 0.4, and in elementary schools, it's zero. Now, the implication of that's interesting. It means to me that homework, as we traditionally do it in primary schools, is probably not having much impact. So what a wonderful opportunity to trial something different. One of the mistakes people make is they see a zero impact and say, let's not do it. That's not necessarily the conclusion. It's let's look at other ways we can improve it. The other one that probably drives me mad is class size. That's one that always surprises people. It's a very low effect, ranked about 104th, I think it is on that list. And I think it's um, fascinating in that case to ask, why is it that reducing class size has not had the kind of impact um, we've expected? Another one that comes up quite often is teacher subject matter knowledge. It's close to zero. I think it's a fascinating question that I'm spending a lot of my own research time at the moment trying to understand that because I don't like that. I don't like the fact that it's low. I accept the fact that it's low and I'm understanding why it's low. And so there are some of those that are low. If you look at right across that rank order list, you'll find that the majority of things that we talk about in the public media, in the staff rooms, in our professional development sessions, don't make much difference. We love to talk about structural things, about how can we can reduce class size, how we can have streaming, how we can change the curricula, how we can go about different ways in which we build buildings, etc. They don't matter. What we don't talk enough about is the stuff at the top of the charts, is how do we understand what our impact is, the feedback to us, how we can use assessment as feedback to us, how we can look at the learning through the eyes of the students. And you know, the notion of teacher credibility, kids are incredibly able to know if you're going to have an impact on their learning. Why aren't we listening to that and having a better sense of that? So let me just raise one more because I've noticed it's coming up in some of the, um, the chat as we're talking about this, and that is the effects of time. Uh, one of the criticisms is that to do the stuff at the top of the chart, how do teachers find time for it? Well, let me confront that straight on. We have, I would argue, 50 to 60% of our teachers who systematically get greater than 0.4 they have the same time as those who get less than 0.4. I don't think time's the issue. I think it's priorities and learning what we give up that's not working so we can replace it with what is working. There's a danger I'm hearing in both the question and the response, right? And uh, I describe it as the um, Hewlett-Packard effect, and there's nothing specific about Hewlett-Packard, but if Hewlett-Packard said, we're producing bad printers because we have bad workers, we would never buy that. We would say, no, it's the company culture, it's the systems, it's the processes that you have for manufacturing. We talk about teachers in the way that you are, but, but don't we have to go a level below to talk about the culture that encourages, supports, and helps teachers become what you want, what you're encouraging us to think of them as? Oh, look, there's no question that is the case, and that's my, one of my fundamental dilemmas in this. Like, for example, my day job in teacher education is very frustrating because the grammar of schooling at the moment and many of the schools out there want what they've had, which is not what I want to deliver. 
and certainly as we're trying to do here at Melbourne to create a different, totally different type of teacher education program that is more clinically based. And I use the acronym, it's a terrible acronym, I apologize for it, but DIE, teachers are to die for. And DIE stands for Diagnosis, Intervene and Evaluate. And what we're trying to do is to teach our teachers how to diagnose what is happening in the classroom, what the learning is, what they need to do. How they can then work out what interventions are going to make a difference and then evaluate that difference. Now that requires a totally different mindset about how we do things. It requires schools who are prepared to think this way. And that requires, as you say, said, the underlying structures, the leadership, the acknowledgement that it's not always easy, that some of these kids are incredibly tough to have impacts on, and how can we share our understanding and our interventions of what we do this. It's having a government that's get away from what Parsi Solberg calls the germ mentality and, and starts to help support these underlying structures of teachers. But most importantly for me is how teachers themselves, are, are they willing to get together and create a profession of teaching, a professional group of teachers who acknowledges that there is this kind of excellence in our business. And so there's no doubt as I think about what policies I'd like to have if I was the Minister of Education, that it would be very much based, based to those kind of support structures. So John, when I read a book, I will underline, I'll double underline if something is important. I'll put a star if it's even more important. I'll put a star and circle it if it's the most important. I put a star and circled several times the exercise you have where parents and teachers and students can look at what they think impacts educational outcome and then compare with what the studies show and then have a conversation on that. Are, are, is that as brilliant in actual practice as I think it would be? It certainly creates the kind of debates that I want to create. Um, and you know, quite often there is a, an eyebrow-raising moment and they say, it can't be true. I don't trust the data. Um, perhaps I'm sounding like a politician here when I say, just trust the data for a moment and try and understand why you think this is not having the impact you think it has. One of the things, though, that's um, really important to me in all this, though, Steve, is that when you have those discussions, that you start to see links across the various things that matter and don't matter, because that truly is what helps resolve those issues. And that's where I found that particular discussion to be very good, to get to that next level. Are there any that raised your eyebrows, then? Well, yeah, I want to talk about two specifically. So the first one is uh, rank number 73, principals slash school leaders. How do you explain that not being higher given the importance of culture? Well, yes, I have um, a colleague, Vivian Robinson, who was like you, very, she was very concerned and didn't understand why that effective school leadership was so low. And when I said to her, Vivian, it's close to point four, she was not consoled by that at all. And so what she did is she then did many studies, a very large meta-analysis, where she broke up the different kinds of principles. She looked at the most common type, which is what she called the transformational principle, that worries about having all the teachers and the kids in the school oriented towards certain visions, usually about high achievement and collaboration and giving back and all those things. How they can create the resources um, for the teachers to then go into their classrooms and make the difference. As opposed to what she called the instructional leader, which is the principal that goes in and says, well, what's happening in the classroom? Let's look at the test scores. Let's understand what the impact is. 
Now, certainly in the US, UK, Australia, and New Zealand, about 85 to 90% of our school leaders are of the transformational side. When you break that down, the, the overall effect of transformational leaders on students' achievement is around about 0.2. The effect of the instructional leader, or I call the impact leader, is around about 0.7. So there is a dramatic difference there. What I also find fascinating is that when we do studies asking teachers what kind of leaders they want, unfortunately, the majority of them, by a long way, want the transformational leader. And all they're saying is, just leave us alone to do our job. So yes, we have a fundamental problem in our system. If it is the case, and certainly Vivian Robinson's work shows this, that the instructional impact leader it makes a dramatic difference, we need a lot more of those. John, I don't know if it's the system or the position of your mic, but every once in a while you kind of fade out and it's harder to hear you. At the very end you came back, but um, if, if it is position, just be aware of that. Okay, the second one I was interested in was uh, you've chosen to focus the book on teachers, but by far and away the number one ranked here, but with, a, with an effect of 1.44 was self-reported grades, student expectations. How does that kind of match with what you're working on? Oh, it's the perfect example. Like, certainly as I wrote the Visible Learning book, I called it self-reported grades. In the second book, I called it student expectations. But this is what it means. Imagine now we've been talking 40 minutes, and right now I'm going to say to you, let's, let's all do a test. Now, before you do the test, predict what your school's going to be. What that says, that 1.44 is that's what kids are best at. Now here's the problem. Most of us, kids, adults, who are asked to set targets, set very safe, easy targets. We got a C last time, we'll try and get a C or a C plus next time. Um, we went out last night, so if I can just pass this exam, I'd be happy. And one of the things that we certainly find is that by about age eight, students know their rank order in class. They know where they fit in class. Let's turn it on its head. I think one of the things that we need to worry about more than anything else is messing up that, that, those student expectations. I certainly argue very strongly that schools are not there to meet the needs of students. Students are not, schools are not there to help students reach their potential. The fundamental role of schools is to help students exceed their potential, make them do better than they think they can. And that's where the whole notion of us knowing our impact it's not just letting kids do what they think they can do. All this dialogue we have about students having control over their, what they do and what they don't do, it sounds wonderful, but unfortunately they choose the kind of things that they, they could do already, and they don't challenge themselves. And as a consequence, some of them get turned off by schooling when they don't find it very challenging. Our job is to challenge them. Our job is to make them do better than what they think they can do. And I think if you look at the teachers who had the biggest impact on you and when you were at primary and elementary school and high school, it would be those teachers who saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself. So I think it's exciting that it's at the very top. Certainly teacher expectations are in there, but more importantly, I think we've forgotten this. It's about the student expectations of what they think they can do, about turning them on to challenge, to turning them on to the love of learning. So I, I want to I ask you about passion because it's such a fascinating part of the book. With this idea of students becoming their own teachers, the sense of mission, of the importance of education, 
both for an individual and for a culture to have people who are thinking and who are uh, trying to look at evidence and trying to figure problems out. Uh, you, your own passion comes through as you describe passion. So, so talk a little bit about the role of passion. I made a, um, a quip in the book which has backfired on me when I said that passion is one of the most powerful denominators of what's happening here, but it's one of the toughest to measure. And it was a bit of a joke at my own background, which is a measurement person. Um, look, it isn't difficult to measure at all. You can see it. You can see it in the teachers who have this level of passion, who are absolutely dedicated to having an impact on students. Students can see when teachers really care that they are learning and understanding and appreciating their subjects. And it, it is something that it is very visible in many classrooms. Yes, it's not something you can package easy. Um, it's not something that you can necessarily develop easily. It requires a certain degree of hunger on the part of the teacher. It requires teachers to not get into a, a kind of habit of, I'm going to teach this today, and this is in the curriculum, the kids have to pass the test. It is a passion about kids making a difference. And it does come through. And when you look at other areas and other work areas, passion is a very common denominator. The whole positive psychology work at the moment that's going on around the world, passion is a very big denominator. We can see it in teachers. And don't we also want to see it in the students? Well, I'm going to answer absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm, I'll kind of, I'm going to come back to that. So I'm going to, I'm going to move on just for a second here. So there are examples in the... Go ahead. Sorry, Steve, just before you get off the passion, one of the things that I think is really important is that when we talk about 21st century skills and all the kind of things we want kids to develop these days, I think that's the key, that we want kids that are passionate about learning. And I don't care whether it's physics, phys ed, whether it's music or math. I just care they have a passion. And if we can have every kid leaving the school having a passion, hopefully about a socially desirable attribute, that I think is what we, we want to have infectious in our system. Okay, I'm glad you brought that back up because we did do a whole show on global education reform or GERM and Posse's idea of the sort of spread of these reform movements that aren't necessarily beneficial but spread. Um, Am I making too strong a connection between uh, what you're describing here is the importance of education for critical thinking and around, around big problems and the spread of global education reform, which systematically uses high-stakes testing, uh, with the result that we're potentially putting ourselves in a very bad position globally when we've framed education the way we have? Look. As a person with a background in measurement, um, in one sense, I probably should like lots of tests. I have no trouble with the many national and standardized tests that are out there if they are solving the problem of getting teachers up to that 0.4 mark. And that's been, I think, not an unreasonable way to do it. The problem with it is that once you get systems working reasonably well, those test systems don't add anything. And the trouble with them, as I've discovered in most countries, is once this country gets a standardized test system like Australia, UK, and US has, it's very, very hard to get rid of it. Uh, it what it discovers all the time is that there's a normal distribution out there. And we're not going to change it by doing more testing and putting more thermometers up the backsides of kids or teachers. It has an effect to get from the bottom to the middle, but from the middle to the top, I think we need something quite different. 
But I think the thing that I'm trying to work on at the moment is how can you get how can you turn the equation on its head and say to schools two questions. What evidence can you provide that you're having an impact on students? And the second question is, and what are you doing about it? So we start to then help schools develop how they're having an impact. And we evaluate the success of that, the quality of that, and get away from this national testing movement. Because we know that most of us can work out reasonably quickly how to play that game. But after a while, that low-hanging fruit is picked off. There isn't much left over. And so I get despaired when I see national testing movements continue. They may be okay for two or three rounds, for two or three years to solve the problem at the bottom, but they don't solve the problem at the middle to the top, and that's what the biggest missing link is for me. John, this is so enjoyable. I'm so glad you're on the show. So I want to look at two examples that you use in the book. One in which I feel like it's really a data discussion, and the other where I really feel like you are looking at the nuance and the kind of, I almost want to say the art of the practice. So I want to compare your discussion on homework with the discussion on deliberate practice. How did you balance in the writing of the book those places where you just kind of reflected the data and those places where you actually kind of pontificate? <laughs> um, that's why it took me 20 years, because it was, I was trying to pontificate in light of the data, and that's tough, because you can get swamped with the data. And one of the versions of the book I wrote when I got to the 500th page, which was resplendent with numbers, I realized no one in their life would ever read this thing, so I gave it up. And, and it is a balance, you're right. And then to take that particular example, um, certainly when you look at a lot of the common denominators of things at the top of the chart, there is a requirement that we teach kids how to practice, practice, practice. And there is an art in doing that. Like if you just go and ask the kids to do the same old stuff again and again and again and again, they don't learn much. And certainly in my days, for example, I've been a cricket coach for many years. You take kids out and you say, you're going to learn the square cut today, just go and do it. They won't. And some of them who will do it, will do it wrongly every time and they'll then get incredibly bad practice. It does require coaching, it does require teaching, it does require students to have a sense of trust that it's okay to make a mistake because they can learn from that. Because that's in a sense why we go to school, to learn what we don't know. And so building up that trusting atmosphere and building up having someone with expertise there. Um, like I look at the work in England of Peter Blanchard uh, who's looked at teaching aids and the zero to negative effect that had. Those kids that are most assigned to those teaching aids need the most expertise. They need these professional teachers. And so there's that notion of how you can get uh, teachers to know about how to practice. To And go back to your example of homework. This is where homework, as Harris Cuban has shown, can be incredibly powerful. If homework is a chance to have another go at practicing something you learned, it's effective. The worst kind of homework you can give kids is work like projects where they have to discover things for themselves. Well, kids who struggle at learning will struggle to do that at home. And all you'll discover from projects is the degree to which their parents can do it. So I think there is a, a massive role for looking at deliberate practice. Um, many people have shown that all of us, whether we're struggling or gifted, need multiple opportunities to learn things. And again, the criticism comes up, but teachers don't have time to do it. Well, I'm sorry. There's an incredible amount of teachers out there who do create opportunities for an effective practice, and at the same time, there are teachers who don't. 
and maybe we have to teach less and learn more. The cricket coaching example really stood out for me. I, I really liked it and I appreciated the way in which the description of what the coach does there makes a difference. But we did have um, Dan Coyle on the show on his book, The Talent Code, and there was a lot of description of deliberate practice. And, and I remember thinking, this is really important. Well, right at the moment, we here in Australia need lots of cricket coaches. <laughs> on the other side of that is that, yes, I think there is a case um, where we need to look at how we can give these kids these chances. Like if you look at near the top of the chart, chart is this notion of acceleration, which typically means gifted kids get jumped a year, they miss a year. Uh, whilst we know that that's one of the most effective interventions we do, even though it hardly ever happens, my message is that are there other ways that we can accelerate what kids do? Maybe we need to, as I said before, teach a little content, less content, and more understanding by giving them more practice about some of those underlying things. My worry when people get together to create curriculum, it's usually a group think exercise where a group of adults get together and say, this is how kids progress and learn. We actually don't know hang of a lot about that at all from the kids' point of view. And so maybe what we need to do is look at some of those big ideas and say, how can we make those, uh, the notion of the underlies our curriculum, the big ideas, the rich ideas, and maybe then we can allow teachers to have multiple ways of getting kids to get those big ideas. Certainly in today's age where we don't need teachers who are just information um, producers, um, providers, developers, it's perhaps we need to start and realise that that information is now really much more readily available to our students than what they were 10 or 20 years ago and come back to what some of those big ideas are. The downside of that, Stephen, is that we have to convince those assessment people that that's what it's about too. And until we get that constructive alignment between the big ideas, the rich ideas, the assessment and the curriculum, we're going to continue to struggle and once again leave so many of us good students behind. I'm going to ask a question that will be hard and, and maybe not entirely fair, but I will be quite comfortable if you push back. So let's take the example of a company, say a financial company, and we look at how the workers are treated in their output and we, we realize they're, they're not being respected, they're, they're not having opportunities to um, learn and grow in certain ways and we create a better culture for that achievement. But we do so without looking at the overall goals of the institution or organization. Uh, is there a degree to which this kind of analysis doesn't address the larger question of the role of institutionalized schooling? Look, I've been around long enough to be aware of the de-schooling movement. Um, you know, the technology revolution has been coming for 35 years. And yes, you can get jaundiced about the institution of schooling. But one of the problems we have is that those who are successful at the institution of schooling are usually the ones that go on and be our politicians and our finances and our business people. And they look back with a kind of nostalgia that what was good for them is good for our kids in today's world. What we're not realising is that we're losing too many. We're losing so, so many. Certainly when I went to school in the 50s and 60s, um, if you were in the top class, you went on to be the doctors and the lawyers. But if you look at who has been successful at our, our, certainly our Western world over the last 40, 50 years, it's been our entrepreneurs, it's been our inventors, it's been our more gifted people 
who weren't gifted kids at school, uh, who normally weren't on the top uh, streams of uh, our high schools, and they use our doctors, the doctors and the lawyers, who are seen as the most privileged, they use them now as almost their, not their servants, but the people that help them. I uh, think that we've got to, we, we really have to start not trying to reproduce the kind of schooling system that we wished we had that was better than the one we had. For the kids that are going out there now, if you have 20 year old students, 20 year old sons and daughters, you realise that the workplace world is dramatically different to what it was. The notion of career is different. The notion of how you look at the nature of jobs is so different. The way in which you can move around the world is so different. And that's not reflected in our institution of schooling. Our students, many of them, are voting with their feet. And a lot of those students who are going on to be our most gifted entrepreneurs, I worry about what the current model of schooling is doing to them. Now, will schools be around in 40, 50 years' time? Absolutely, I think they will. I think they'll be quite different in terms of how they look. They're already starting to be different. Even the discussions about flipped classrooms and the way in which you're using some of the um, notions off the internet now are starting to have a little bit of a difference, not a dramatic difference at all. But some of our students are going to vote with their feet um, and look for alternative ways of trying to understand this. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to happen. I think the resistances are going to be ginormous. If for no other reason that we have to find someone to babysit those kids while their parents work, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I mean that that's going to justify the institution of schooling. But what happens in those schools, it's it will certainly change. The exciting thing is that when you get some of your teacher education students, your 20-year-olds and, um, 20 and early 30-year-olds who go through a kind of a clinical uh, teaching practice and go out into schools, they think so differently and they, as they get older, become the leaders of our system. I have a lot of faith that they're going to help us lead a, a new version of what we call schooling. This is going to be very interesting. We had Nikhil Goyal on the show who's a sort of student scholar of education, who's written a book called One Size Does Not Fit All. He must be all of 18 right now. And he's actually advocating for students to go on strike. I know that the, the idea that we will rebuild the system is a positive one. Um, what do you tell teachers who say, I don't work in that environment. I, couldn't, I can't even imagine uh, having the kind of discussions that you're describing. Would you ever encourage them to go work somewhere else, or do you try and have them work within their existing structure? The current grammar of schooling is pretty powerful. Um, like we know from the kind of synthesis of classroom observation that 80% of school time teachers talk. We know teachers ask 200 questions a day. We know that 95% of those questions, the kids know the teacher knows the answer to. We know that students ask about two questions a day. Um, that they actually, about their work, they don't know the answer to. Those things are very powerful out there. We've, we have a whole lot of teacher education institutions that train teachers to be reproducers of that kind of model. It is a very, very big uphill battle. It would be nice to think that the students would strike. Um, I know my son a few years ago when he was in school, the teachers had a strike, so we organised a student strike and then it didn't go down very well at the school at all. So the resistance is um, to, to the student striking is ginormous. We know that there is about 5 to 10 percent of our schools in any country that are quite different from the regular, and we know that we haven't been able to upscale those uh, to take over the, the whole grammar of schooling that's out there. My argument is that the way, the lever to do that is probably through the assessments. For example, in the next round of PISA, 
My colleagues here at the University of Melbourne have come up with a way of measuring collaborative learning. And I think that's a stunning innovation that will be looked at across many countries. And that may help drive countries to realise that if you want to be high on the international lead table, you're going to have to worry about collaborative learning. Wouldn't it be exciting if we could get some of those other kinds of skills that we want students to have in learning on those international tests? Because I think that's going to be the way where we're going to have the biggest change in our schooling system as opposed to the current system which measures a very narrow group of skills, nothing wrong with them, but very narrow group of skills uh, that shows how kids are able to perform. So I think there is an opportunity that's going to happen there and I think my hunch is it's going to happen through the assessment regime, because if we wait for the schools to change, a lot of our teachers are very comfortable doing what they think is a great job. Now, good news, certainly from the visible learning work, there is a, a large number of teachers out there who are not prepared to do that grammar of schooling. And so, yes, there is faith out there. John, what have you found about the role of parents, and what advice do you give parents? Look, parents worry the heck out of me for a few reasons. Firstly, um, every time we talk about parents in our current system, we're usually privileging those parents who can and who know how to help their students. They're having the high resources in the home, having the expertise. And that's not a bad thing, of course. But there's a whole group of parents out there who want to do those kind of things but don't know how. And the trouble every time we talk about parents is we privilege one group and we bias the other group. So I want to turn the question on its head. I think, um, if you think, Steve, yourself, I think right now, given you're in Bali, I bet you're your own travel agent. You get on and you book your flights and you know how to choose your seats on airlines. I bet you're your own bank teller and you know how to do all that kind of stuff. In most of those businesses, the, the notion of co-production is the norm. We have never thought about that in an education set, is how we can actually construct systems so that parents can, and, and homes and families can co-produce, as opposed to what we do at the moment when we kind of school dump on them. Go home and do this work and get your parents to help you. Ask the parents to help the kids read to the kids. Well, some parents don't know how to do that. I don't mean they can't read. They don't know how to sit down and read with the kids in ways in which it can be enjoyable. Why are we making it so hard for those kids to get the start in life? But if we turn it on its head and say, how can we co-produce and get parents understanding what the language of learning is? And certainly we did a major study in New Zealand for over a five-year period where we looked at this whole co-production and we had some stunning success. So I have a lot of faith here, but I think we have to turn the question on its head. Uh, this, is, this is fascinating. I'm glad you brought up the trip because we actually have our 15-year-old daughter with us who in many ways we've recognized become so dependent on, she's such an achiever on getting the test exactly right, on meeting expectations, that we've sort of devoted this year with her to helping her become more independent. Um, I'm going to have to think about that quite a bit. Um, we've only got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to ask about the Paideia program, because I followed this for some time. And, and you have uh, you know, apparently worked within a Paideia school, I think, or have high familiarity. Why do programs like this not expand more broadly? Well, good, good question that I worry about too. Like, what fascinates me with the whole visible learning work is that I don't think I've discovered anything new. I think that what I've talked about, many others have talked about many times before me. And it kind of brings me to what 
is my fundamental question I ask myself as a researcher now, and that is why is it that ideas based on evidence that have been around for many years, why are they scalable? Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Pardia is a very good example. Like in the Pardia program, there are three parts to it. There is what they call didactic teaching, which is the normal grammar and school, and that's a third. They have a third they call coach product projects, where they, they coach to actually produce something. But the third that makes the difference is Socratic questioning, where they spend time listening to students, how students ask each other questions, how students answer each other's questions without the teacher being involved. And let me tell you, that's a very tough skill for me to learn. Um, and, and that's really what has, as you love with your daughter, how it gets them to take some responsibility for asking questions and not waiting for the teacher to ask the questions. How it gets them to take some initiative about what they do next as opposed to waiting for the teacher to tell them what to do next. And these are the, the core notions of learning. And so why don't they grow? Because our current model of teaching is that we talk. Sometimes maybe we should shut up and maybe we should listen more. And like as with your daughter, but obviously I haven't a clue what she's like in the school and work, but you're saying, I bet she's one that just loves the notion that a teacher's prepared to tell her. Uh, we get them in undergraduate university all the time. They say, just tell us what to do. Um, we'll do it and you make sure that we, they, that, that we make sure that they give us back what we wanted them to tell us in the first place. That kind of cookbook model, unfortunately, is very much loved by a lot of our students. The problem I have is that in some classrooms, it's too risky to not do that. We need more risk. We need more tolerance of error and opportunity. We need, need more teachers to stop and listen to what the students are doing. And in one sense, your, student, your daughter probably will do very well because our whole system is geared towards students who are compliant to the system. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But while I would love the system to be a little bit more tolerant of ambiguity. That's probably a really great place to end, John. As a courtesy to our guests, we always finish on time. Thanks so much for coming on. It's a pleasure, Steve, and I've been watching the chat room over the last hour and it's really great to see so many people are engaging with this and I hope there's an opportunity certainly as I travel around the world that we can meet up and have further discussions with them all out there and sitting with yourself. Thank you. Thanks John. Thanks to all of you for being such active uh, chatters. The book is Visible Learning for Teachers, Maximizing Impact on Learning and we've been talking to John Hattie. Thanks everybody. Have a great day or evening depending on where you are. Bye now. <laughs>